one out of every four books in tra- published in translation are by women, um, which oh, is wow. which is so few, yeah. especially when you think about it's half readers. the amount that it should be if I'm doing. Maths. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today we're talking translation. August brings Women in Translation Month and I couldn't let that pass without prodding it a little bit, using it as an excuse to learn more about translated fiction. I love translated fiction and I'm always fascinated by the dance that has to be done between the author and the translator and the kind of magic translators do not only translating the work but often finding the work and negotiating that work uh, into our bookshops. So today I'm talking to two very special translators. Uh, One is Tiffany Sao. She is an incredible author in her own right but she also translates from Indonesian into English and Elizabeth Jaquette who is a translator from Arabic into English. Elizabeth recently translated The Frightened Ones which is a vintage book by Dima Wanis all about books and manuscripts and metafiction and follows Nassim who lives in Syria but has to leave for Germany. I chatted to both of them about the unexpected paths they had to becoming a translator. I wanted to know if it was more academic or more artistic and what they what, what the process was. I wanted to know exactly how our favourite translated books get into bookshops and who decides what gets to us. First, I'm going to play you my chat with Elizabeth and then we're going to go on to talking to Tiffany. I hope you really enjoy hearing the nuances of the translation world. It really fascinated me and it's definitely made me see uh, my translated fiction in a different way. So first, let's talk to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited to have you. Uh, And it's also really excited to be able to beam bookish kind of conversations across continents during this lockdown time. Uh, How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yeah, I think that, so I, I live in Tucson, Arizona, which is mm-hmm. generally quite disconnected from literary events and conversations. And so one yeah. silver lining about this lockdown is that it's, you know, given me the chance to participate in book clubs, you know, in the UK and in New York and in book talks with authors and, and things like this. So thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, it's great. And no need to pack your bag or like even put your shoes on. It's <laughs> exactly, great. exactly. It's the ultimate, the <laughs> ultimate dream. Um, so tell us a little bit um, about how you got started speaking Arabic and translating Arabic, because um, I guess maybe just because Britain and we have a lot of like closer European neighbours, but when I think translation, I immediately think French. I don't know why, but it's mainly like one of the predominant like languages that I think British readers read in translation. Tell us a little bit about, about Arabic, the language, and why you started speaking it yeah um well I think like many translators I kind of fell into literary translation as what's now my mm-hmm. profession um very few translators you know take the high school test of what career path would be good for you and find oh literary translation that that sounds like me um I think you know when I started off on the path that would lead me to translation I didn't even consider literary translation as some some place I might end up um to start at the beginning, I moved to Cairo, Egypt, um, right out of undergrad, um, a bit on a whim. My One of my college um, close college friends had grown up there, and she taught abroad right after graduating in Morocco, and I'd gone to visit her, um, had a great couple, two weeks, uh, really wanted to see if I would enjoy living abroad, um, went to a job fair, interviewed with schools, 
all over the world um, and got a job offer in Cairo and said, sure, why not? I don't know what else I'll do after graduation <laughs> with a liberal arts why degree. <laughs> um, so I moved to, to Cairo thinking that, um, you know, I would, I would give it a shot and see how I liked it there. And if I really hated it, you know, I'd move back home by Christmas. And I ended up staying there for five years, uh, made some really good friends. Um, that was also, it was also an incredibly eventful time in, in Egypt's history. I moved there in 2007 and left in 2013. Mm. Um, so the Arab Spring, doing air quotes, the Arab Spring, yeah. the Egyptian Revolution happened during that time. Um, you know, a lot of exciting and then de depressing social change. You know, it was really, at mm -hmm. first it was a really exciting um, moment. It seemed like a lot of social, you know, possibility for social and political change. Um, but at, at any rate, you know, I studied Arabic at first kind of informally while I was there and then increasingly seriously. Um, and also while I was in Cairo, I started a book club um, that was a bilingual book club. And we would read, um, you could choose to read the book in English or in Arabic. And so we had a great group of Americans and um, Europeans and Egyptians and, and uh, you know, people would choose whatever language they wanted to read the book in and then talk about it. And it ended up being a book club about translation because inevitably yeah. um, there would be really different opinions at times. You know, I remember one book by Nagib Mahfouz that we read um, and the people who read it in Arabic were just gushing about, oh, the prose was beautiful and, you know, not much happened, but it was just lovely and you could just soak up the language and the readers in English were saying, I thought it was rather boring. Um, I didn't get that at all. And so, you know, we'd, then we'd have conversations about, okay, well, well, what happened in this change from one language to the next? Um, or, you know, vice versa, you know, there'd be a really beautiful passage in English and then people would want to go back and say, okay, well, you know, read us, read it to us in the Arabic. Tell us about what did that sound like to you in the Arabic? Um, um, and so that's really what started my interest in translation and uh, viewed it as, you know, I started to view it as something that was full of a range of possibilities as opposed to just a, um, a fait accompli or a fact that, you know, you start off with one book and you would get another in another language. Um, and so towards the end of when I was uh, leaving Egypt, I just started to wonder, you know, translation, is it something I would like to do? Is it something I'd be any good at um, and started with a couple of short excuse me so I started with a couple of short stories um, and then had read a book by Basma Abdelaziz called The Q which for me at the time really captured this moment in Egypt of immediately after the revolution and this growing discontent uh, with the political process and realizing that social change maybe wasn't just on the horizon. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was an incredible, you know, it, I found it incredibly powerful. It was a really different perspective on the situation. And so I approached her and asked if I could translate it. And that was my first book that then got me into translating more and more. Wow. I suppose that's, again, like something that I think is a misunderstanding is that people sometimes think translation is kind of like converting miles into kilometers or you know it's that thing it's just like oh we'll just do it with google translate you can Absolutely. just pop it in and it spits it out and it's really especially when it comes to literary stuff it's not like that at all absolutely um yeah i, I want to you... be in like a book club like that now <laughs> you should well actually if i can plug something small there's there is the the borderless book club which i really enjoyed in lockdown mm. which um Perini press is, is running and they read all lit in translation and they bring the translator on so um but yes check it out <laughs> I will definitely that's that's definitely that's gonna be amazing um 
so you've said a little bit about your kind of path to translation um and i imagine there's lots of different ways to become a translator but are there any certain i mean maybe not formal skills apart from obviously knowing the language and knowing the other language very well as well uh, but is there any kind of like skills or traits that you kind of see in common with translators or is it kind of like a little bit personality homogenous is there like a certain kind of person i know that's the same with like um in publishing like editorial there is like a certain kind of person that i'm like you're an editor <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely it's a very good question um first off i think that translators are people who not only have language skills but love literature and love thinking about what makes a book tick because when you're translating just like you said it's not only a one-to-one -one word transfer you can't just plug it into google translate you need to be really attuned to what's going on that makes this book do what it does you know is it the character's voice is it the pacing is it the tone and having an appreciation and an interest in recreating that uh, I think is, is something that is just as essential as having the language skills. Um, in terms of personality traits, I think translation definitely attracts people who are very detail-oriented. You have to be able to go over the same passage again and again and again and really fine-tune it um, and not leave something that, you know, if there's a passage that you just don't exactly understand, but yeah, maybe you can just render it and kind of gloss over it immediately. Those are the passages that an English reader is going to say, something's not right here, or I didn't understand either. Mm. Um, so I think you have to really love the attention to detail going back over and over. I, I suppose it's kind of a negotiation, like translating, but it's also kind of intervening. How, how to what extent are there any like examples of like when pay, times when you've not known what's kind of going over the line and really changing what somebody's saying and what's because I imagine there's like just in small ways there's phrases like it's raining cats and dogs which isn't like you, if you translated that into Arabic it wouldn't make any like what Absolutely it doesn't make any not. sense anyway but like <laughs> you, there's, there's stuff like that that I can imagine you're just like we're gonna have to use a completely different phrase um, but then I imagine there's kind of bigger kind of I don't know themes or topics or I don't know are there any examples yeah, of absolutely. like times when you've had to be absolutely. like oh no yeah um certainly and i i think as i translate more books and certainly more authors i've re and work with different editors realize that the strategy really has to uh, be adaptable by book and by author some mm -hmm. authors are really invested in what they've written traveling and being broadly um, understood, like, for example, Basma Abdelaziz with the Q, it wasn't until I got to the end of the book, until I realized she actually never said Egypt. She never said this book is set in Egypt. And I wrote to her at the very, very end. It's actually a question from the editor. You know, she's the, somebody's buying something in pounds and the editor said, can we say Egyptian pounds so people don't get confused and think it's sterling? And I said, oh, wait a minute is it Egyptian pounds? And I had to go back to the author and say, yeah, should it be Egyptian pounds? Is This is a really basic question I should have asked a year ago, but is this book set in Egypt? And she said, oh, no, actually, you know, clearly Egypt is the um, inspiration for the story, but I really want it to be a book that speak, you know, it's about live life under authoritarianism and what absolute power does to people. And I really want that message. You know, that is a universal, unfortunately. I really want that people to be able to kind of put their situation onto this. Um, mm. So for an author like that, I feel like, I will feel like I have much more liberty to kind of change those cultural specificities because clearly yeah. the cultural, like the specific thing that she's writing about isn't as important to her broader 
you know, broader goal. Yeah, she's writing from a really transient space anyway. Exactly. What influences the kind of books that gets translated? Because obviously, like, you know, even working in publishing, I know that there are certain things that influence what gets published, what gets talked about. But when it comes to translation, are you, do you go out and seek those books and then kind of bring them to an editor? Or how how does it work? Yeah, it can happen in in all different ways. Um, Sometimes a publisher will, you know, acquire a book and, you know, a, a book written in a foreign language uh, without a translator attached and then go out seeking seeking a translator. Um, sometimes they'll get samples from a number of different translators and, um, you know, compare and choose the one they think fits the book best. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes that's that's when an agent has, has brought a book to a publisher um, or, you know, when the publisher hears about something that's been successful at, you know, at London or Frankfurt or another book fair. Um, other times... Uh, it'll be the translator who brings the book to a publisher. I think as translators, we do, we, translators tend to wear many hats to survive in this industry. And one of those is as kind of proxy agent. A lot of translators mm-hmm. do the work of an agent for authors they're interested in translating. And so they, you know, will do a sample uncommissioned, write up a report, write up a summary. You leverage their network of publishers and editors to find a home for a book. Um, Mm. So I've gotten projects both ways. There was another project I got because there was a notice in the the bookseller that a publisher had acquired a book from Arabic. And so I wrote and said, you know, hello, do you have a, do you have a translator attached? You know, can I do a sample for you? Um, And that one ended up happening. Um, This book actually came from an agent, uh, Yasmina Drasati at the Mm. Raya Agency, um, who's a fantastic a fantastic agent. She has a, a great list of um, prize-winning and really, you know, prize-winning books from all over the Arab world. Um, excellent authors. Uh, she brought this one. You know, this is a book that that she had heard about through um, Ilias Khouri, a, a great Arab author, um, and picked this one up. I think before it was published in Arabic. So I'd done a sample before it was published in Arabic, and then she she shopped this one around. So I was just lucky to kind of ride on her coattails as she did the agenting yeah. work for this one. Um, but, you know, I it's, uh, as, as you know well, the literary ecosystem has so many different key players from translators and authors and, and editors and publishers and marketing folks who actually get the books out into readers' hands and booksellers. Um, and, you know, for, for books in translation, often you know, books coming from other languages often don't have the same kind of support structures, or at least the, you know, going country by country and language by language, those support structures will look very different. And so for countries, you know, certain countries in Europe will have a really robust um, infrastructure of basically promotional offices that say, here's the best books coming from Dutch or from Polish, and send Mm -hmm. those out. You know, books coming from Arabic have nothing like that, and Arabic is actually getting to be better represented um, among literature and translation. Um, and so for those languages, it's often the translators who have to do the extra legwork to really get those books in front of um, commissioning editors' hands. Yeah, because I've seen, I was um, looking at some interviews that you've done um, before and you talked about how um, like books from Arabic into English are a little bit more rare in that kind of market. Um, do, you, do you see that changing? And, and also like, 
I don't know. It's really hard to say why that is, but I know that, like, like I said at the beginning, like I think French translations are quite common in Britain, at least. And you know, I don't think that's just because it's across the water from us and they're our neighbours. I think it's also because we really romanticise the French culture and the French language, and we think it's very quirky and cool and sexy. Um, and I think that there, there's probably there's probably lots of different like implications as to why that is. But yeah, why do you think that is, and do you think it will yeah. change? I, I think it is changing actually. Um... I haven't, I should have looked up some stats before this and come out with numbers <laughs> at the ready. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think it is changing, um, if depressingly in part due to geopolitics. I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, people read translated fiction for all sorts of reasons. Um, I, I, but I, I think you're absolutely right that certain languages get pigeonholed into kind of bearing certain connotations. Yeah, you know, the French books are the cultural ones and, you know, <laughs> You could have a certain kind of like French protagonist, you know, I don't need to tell you about Scandi, Scandi crime. Um, oh yeah, Scandi, and, Scandi crime. <laughs> and, and how that really set expectations for what kind of literature a reader might, you know, might read, will, you know, will read from, from Scandinavia. Um, I think that people tend to turn to books from the Arab world for a bit of kind of to the background to the news story, unfortunately, uh, which is, you know, there, there is a tradition in Arabic you know, literature of, of taking social issues head on in writing. Um, but that's obviously not the entire width and breadth of the, of the canon. There's plenty of writers who aren't interested in that at all. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the increase in Arabic literature being published is, you know, a, a bit due to more recent focus on, you know, September 11th, Arab Spring, more kind of layman interest in what's going on behind the news in the Arab world. Um, in the U.S. at least, uh, there, after September 11th, there was a lot of money from, you know, Department of Education, State Department into Arabic learning, largely mm-hmm. for governmental purposes, but there, suddenly there was a huge infrastructure for learning the Arabic language that hadn't been there before. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah, uh, Chris Stone has written a great piece on that in uh, Jadalea, um, uh, you know, about the politics of, you know, what happens when you're a language instructor and, you know, you've come to the language for cultural or literary reasons and then your classroom is filled with folks who want to go into the CIA or FBI. Um, you know, what what is your responsibility as an instructor? Um, going down a rabbit hole here. Um, but I do, you know, that's kind of a stark reason for things changing, but I do think that in the publishing world at large, I think that there's been more awareness in recent years uh, to, you know, more attention paid to translated literature and then growing awareness as to what languages haven't been translated from or what books we only have, you know, you know, very few books from a certain country or language um, and a bit more attention paid to those, um, which, which is really great. You know, smaller, smaller presses popping up like Tilted Axis, for example, whose focus is really mm. bringing in literature from, from Asia. Um, yeah. and that's great to see. Um, yeah, but I, I have seen the numbers tick up in terms of Arabic, you know, I, books coming out and, uh, I'm not quite sure why I'll have to do a bit of more thinking. Well, I'm glad that it is. That's the, yeah, that's no, the main it's, thing. It is exciting. <laughs> Sometimes it is exciting. we don't know, but yeah. yeah. I think the more, the more books you have from a given language too, the more possibilities you have to break out of that one mold of what you would expect from a certain language or culture. Yeah, definitely. Um, as a woman working in translation, um, do you think there has historically been a, like ways that women are treated differently in that sphere? It's kind of like, I'm kind of guess I'm just asking because it seems to be the same in 
every industry. In every industry. <laughs> so it'd be amazing if, if translation was completely immune. Um, but do you think there's a gender divide? Um, and, and do you think that like that is changing or how how is that moving? Yeah, you know, it, literary translation is, is not a male-dominated field. I think that there are probably slightly more women working in translation, you know, which is probably not that surprising when you think about, you know, the demographics of literature and of the arts in general, um, yeah. women's willingness perhaps to take on financially precarious labor um, or, you know, willingness slash the, the the fact that that labor isn't appropriately paid for um, yeah. across the arts. Um, but I, I do think that I know that there's a big difference um, when it comes to what authors are translated, men or women. You know, the women in translation movement has been growing over recent years. Um, it started off with the acknowledgement that one out of every four books in published in translation are by women. Um, which oh, is wow. which is so few, yeah. especially when you think about it's half the readers. amount that it should be. If I'm doing, maths. yep, yep, yep. So that means you know you look on your bookshelf and there's three books by men in translation for every one book by a woman. Uh, the numbers mm. in Arabic are actually a bit a bit lower, about twenty two percent as of a few years ago when I did run the numbers. Um, mm. So, and I think the reasons for that are are systemic and when you think about how many steps a book in translation has to go through or a book from another language has to go through in order to reach English readers um, and all the methods of gatekeeping at, at each way it's it's very easy to see how you know there are fewer and fewer women at every stage books that win prizes are much more likely to be picked up um, books yeah. that are you know sell really well in the in the you know in the in the country are more likely to be picked up so you know so i think it requires us to think about every step of the process from you know where where you know where do editors look for books you know translators need to be really conscious in terms of what books they are choosing to champion um and i think a lot of translators are and then um yeah but but at every stage of more and more being being filtered out you know what what stories what books are we missing out on as english readers just from a yeah, definitely. I think it's like women writers are being kept from women readers. I'm like, give me Absolutely. the more, <laughs> like, exactly, give us exactly. more of each other. That's so unfair. Exactly. Um, I think. I think. But just to add on to your question, that you know, in terms of inequality in the field, um, it's pretty clear that um, you know racial inequality is huge in the translation field. It's a very white field, um, mm -hmm. and there's all sorts of ways that either heritage speakers or people who grew up bilingual are. Um, yeah, are, are pushed out of the field or their work is questioned in ways that white translators who learned a foreign language as a second language, you know, it simply doesn't happen to them. They're given the benefit of the doubt um, where heritage speakers and translators of color are not. So, you know, that's certainly something that our field really needs to reckon with but at every level. That was Elizabeth. And now we're going all the way over to Sydney to talk to Tiffany. Tell us a little bit about how you got into being a writer and translator, because you're both right. You write your own books, but you also translate other people's stuff. Tell, tell us a little bit about how that, how that started. Okay. Um, yeah. So for writing, I guess I've always been a writer. I guess lots of writers say this, right? They've mm. always been writing. And it's just a matter of when... That's <laughs> because yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just a matter of when something you write actually gets published, I guess. Then it's like, oh, I guess I mm. can call myself a writer now. So... Um, Actually, I had been working on my very first novel, The Odd Fits, for like eight years. Um, I think, wow. I think, yeah, starting from when I was an undergraduate at university to through grad school and then 
um, yeah, after that. And then um, I guess um, finally, you know, after a long time, I found an agent. And then finally, um, they found a publisher. And um, yeah, so that's how I got into writing. So it was sort of belated because it's like, oh, this thing I, you know, spent a really long time writing several years is, is now like going to get published. So yay. Um, and then for translating, actually, um, it actually happened. I really wasn't going to get into translating. And I had actually um, just started you know, reconnecting, I guess, with um, Indonesian as a language because I, uh, my family spoke it around the house, um, spoke it sometimes to me, but um, often spoke to me in English, um, sent me to English language medium schools. So I never really um, spoke it all that much except for like, you know, a few phrases here and there. And I lived in Indonesia for six years, but again, I went to an international school. Um, so just at the first part of graduate school, there was um, actually a requirement for my PhD in English um, that I needed um, either medium proficiency in two languages or advanced proficiency in one. And I was very lazy. And I said, oh, maybe I'll just do Indonesian because then um, I know some already. So then I can, you know, get that requirement done faster. But what happened was I actually, you know, began reading more Indonesian books. I took a class, a little seminar in Indonesian literature, and I just started to really love it. Um, but it really never occurred to me to go into translation. Um, I wanted to become an academic at the time. Um, but then I gr- gradually began researching Indonesian literature. And then um, I left academia. That was like sort of messy. I'm not going to go into that big can of worms. Um, basically, academia and I broke up and they took my toaster and I was really mad at them. But then I'm like, it's okay, I'll get new toasters. So then I went to get new toasters and I was like, what do I do now? And then I was like, oh, I still have some time. Um, here. So I began um, volunteering at Asymptote, which is a literary journal um, for translated literature. Um, I became their Indonesian editor. And I, at the same time, that was when um, Indonesia was going to be uh, the guest of honor at the Frankfurt Book Fair. And my agent said, oh, you're actually, you know, you have connections to Indonesia. So just wondering, do you have any recommendations of Indonesian authors? And I said, yes, these and this and this person... And I said, and if you want, I can translate some samples because I don't know how else you would figure out what their work was like. And then she said, sure. And then she's like, oh, this is great. And from there, actually, that's how I ended up becoming, um, I got started doing literary translation uh, myself. And, you know, for Asymptote as well, uh, I had to produce samples for the editors to, because I was asked to, you know, think of possible writers that they might want to solicit from Indonesia. And, you know, when you don't have something that's translated already or an example of their work that's translated into English, you have to be like, oh, well, I guess I'll um, translate this myself so you can see. And then I think that gave me a bit more um, experience and and confidence about thinking, oh, I can actually, maybe I want to become a literary translator. Yes, long story. That's incredible. Yeah, no, but I love it. And it's so interesting being like writing your own work as well and that kind of bringing that creative element to it. I think that like um, in the last like kind of 10, 15, probably 20 years now at this point, um, having like Google Translate at our fingertips kind of gives us a false sense of what translation really is because I, I can just be like copy and paste a sentence in and another sentence comes out. But when it comes to literary translation, it's very different from that, right? Would you say that kind of translation or the kind of translation you do is more of like an art or a science or is it somewhere in between? oh I would have to definitely say art because partly because I think I began by approaching it as a science um so Mm. just because I did a PhD in English lit and um 
you know, literary criticism was always at the forefront of my brain. And actually, like, it was really hard for me at first to shed that literary scholar who wanted everything to be almost the same as it was in Mm. Indonesian so I could do you know so someone could do a close reading right so oh they use this same word here and this same word here and then this same word here and so maybe I need to maybe make all of these the same for accuracy right somehow but then mm. um, as a writer right I was like this doesn't make any sense and it really actually took a little while for me to give the writer side of me that license to say no think you can think like a writer like you can actually translate these three words which are repeated um, as different words or, you know, like omit mm. some because, you know, just because in Indonesian often repetition sounds much more natural than in English. And English is very, um, what is it, intolerant of repetition, of, rep- of repeated words, right? Um, so that was like really interesting to, to see and think about. And, and then also I think um, just to have more license to say, oh, you know, there's something about the rhythm of this that isn't actually literally translatable, right? It's a rhythm or it's a feel. And um, yeah, you, you kind of have to enter into the writerly, the artistic right, um, spirit of a translation to be more, and you know, I, I feel like what turns out ends up being more accurate and more faithful to the original than a literal translation. And that was, a, but that was actually a really, um, something that I was initially very resistant first um, too, because I'd been trained at, um, I, I just had like that very academic um, training. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder with um, books I read that are translated, sometimes they'll give me a cultural cue because I don't know that much about the country. So they'll be like, they'll say a word and they'll be like a popular kind of brand of this. Or do you, how much kind of cultural context do you add into the work for like an English speaking audience? And how much do you think it's actually up to the reader to work that out yeah that's really hard because I think I started out wanting to provide more cultural context and you know that also has depended on the author like sometimes I remember for the very first novel I translated which was um, Paper Boats by Di Lasari um, Mm. I think she was much she much more wanted like a sort of seamless experience Um, you know except for things that were like obviously Indonesian that you know you're not going to translate this thing into this completely other different thing but um, she was much more wanting the, re- you know, so she was much more okay with, I guess, um, not not anglicizing, but, you know, like just sort of glossing over things that might raise um, question marks in, in an English reader's head. Or, you know, like she was open to discussing it when I, you know, was like, oh, maybe we should retain this particular honorific or this, you know, other thing. Um, but then, you know, like um, just, you know, with, with other authors I've had, they'll speak, you know, they'll say more like, no, I really want, you know, I don't want to say, you know, um, change the name of this dish, right? I want it to be exactly mm-hmm. this and I don't want to italicize it either. And I've much more been been more open to that as well, right? Um, and to say like, you know, just saying like, oh, that's right, you know, like it doesn't necessarily need to be italicized. People can just look it up. People can probably tell from context. Um, so I've sort of been moving from one direction um, much more to the other direction um, because yeah part of it is also me thinking about how uh, I forget what it's called not a keystone language but it's a language that often has has become sort of this weird like universal language so mm-hmm. um, a lot of people in different countries read English right and consume English you know language media English including English language works 
um, without necessarily having been colonized by the, you know, which, you know, that, that was sort of the mm. metric before, but now it's actually just, you don't really need to have that particular colonial history with um, the UK in order to be like, oh, okay, I can read English. Yeah, right? it's also yeah. Like the language of business um, and the language of, yeah, okay. yeah. And then I think to myself, like, oh, okay, well, you know, these people are reading works where, you know, the the person who's writing is not like completely catering to them right and they're like not thinking oh what if someone doesn't know this or this or this right the assumption is oh these people will know about this and this and this or like you know this is how things are in um the UK this is how school works in the US you know things like that um so then I've sort of been moving towards thinking like oh okay maybe I should um yeah me be more uh what is it poking prodding pushing um, encouraging, encouraging is a good word, encouraging of the reader to, um, you know, really just be, to be open to, you know, just absorbing cultural details without having everything explained to them in detail. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's nice as well. I, I imagine it depends on the book, but yeah, I think that's good for, good for the reader as well to like be, you know, because a part of the point of reading translated fiction is to immerse yourself in somebody else's culture and story. And so I think, I think that's really great. Um, it sounds to me um, from a few translators I've talked to and also from you that it like a lot of the the way a lot of books gets translated into English um, is because somebody is an advocate for it. Like, like you were talking about with different books you were recommending, somebody has fallen in love with it and is like, yes, this is the one. Um, wh- what do you think decides what gets translated from Indonesian in particular? And do you think that there's... Um, I was I was talking um, to um, this uh, Elizabeth um, as well for this podcast about how she translates stuff into Arabic and sometimes the books that get translated is uh, kind of dictated also by what the English market thinks of Arabic books. Does that make any sense? And like what they what like their <laughs> idea of of Arabic literature and then what actually you know do you think there's a self fulfilling prophecy there and and yeah i don't know really know what i'm asking i'm just th- throwing things at you oh, okay yeah. yeah so um i totally think that um because i don't know like um it's interesting there's i won't go into great detail but there's a short story collection i'm translating now um and it's called uh the indonesian title is orang orang bloomington and in english it's the people of bloomington and it's actually um set in this you know this city in uh Indiana in the US. And it's not, you know, it's not about, right, or it's not really apparent that the the narrator is foreign. I think the narrator is, it's mentioned that there's a, that he's a foreign student in one story. And the rest, it's just supposed to be native, um, you know, native uh, Bloomingtonians. Sorry. Um, There's probably a special word for um, inhabitant of Bloomington that I'm not getting. (laughs) And it was really interesting because um, it's actually a very and this was based on the writer, you know, having done a master's and a PhD in Bloomington, right? And having lived there for quite a long time. Uh, and, you know, writing um, these stories set there. And they're really, um, like, you know, like, the the story collection is, like, really quite beloved. And the stories are, like, very dark and sinister, but also quirky and um, just really cool. And um, I remember when I read it, and I was like, oh why has this never been translated um, into English? Or I, I thought, surely this has been translated. Um, or these stories have been translated. And so then I actually asked around and found out that they hadn't been. And um, one very prominent um, publisher of Indonesian literature um, 
kind of said when I when I asked him, oh, you know, because they were sort of the um, obvious candidate for someone who would have published that work because they've been publishing and translating a lot of Indonesian works. And they said, um, oh, no, um, it's not. Um, no, we haven't. Uh, there's there's no translations except for one that we did in a in a, you know our old journal that's out of print now, and um, to me the you know the stories ring false, and so that was really interesting right um, this whole idea of the stories ringing false meaning that you know there's like I I kind of was like oh because they're set in you know America is is that why um, and then I you know was like oh well um, you know I'll I'll ask the author if I can translate it anyway and you know, we'll set about finding a publisher. And so we did, we did. Um, and it was very interesting when I began then submitting the short, one of the short stories around. Um, and one of the, the, the feedback I got from one translation journal was, you know, um, you know, this is, she said like, oh, well, we'd like something more sort of explicitly Indonesian in content. Hmm. Uh, do you have anything else? We'd be interested in looking at other work of this author uh, if it was, you know, maybe set in Indonesia or, um, and, you know, that, that actually like bothered me (laughs) because, um, you know, because first of all, you know, like, I mean, it's not necessarily an example right now to follow, but, you know, there's so many Western works that are set in, you know, quote unquote, the Far East or, you know, um, the Orient or, you know, other places. And I don't think anyone really makes much, has made much of it, right? They've become literary classics, part of the canon. Um, And, you know, also, right, this, like, so then it made me think, like, oh, what are we expecting of our translated fiction? Because this, the short story collection is actually really beloved. Um, It's gone through three, it's been uh, released, like, in three editions, so three print runs. Um, uh, And, you know, like, people really like, you know, like, people speak very fondly of it. And, you know, uh, like, just to think that there is this expectation that the West has of Indonesian literature that's holding back what it is available for it to consume, right? So I think I think that was made very apparent to me upon, you know, what during the process of translating this, this collection. Yeah, and that, that I guess that means, like, for us as, as readers, being aware that there's two kinds of, you know, there's two kind of questions you ask when you read, you read translations. It's kind of partly like oh, I want to experience what it's like to be in this country and I want to be immersed in the culture and I want to... But then there's also this thing of like, well, I want. I also want to know what Indonesian people are reading <laughs> because it sounds like these are really popular, beloved books. Yeah, that's right. And then also, right, like, um, you know, there are many, um, I guess, right, non-English um, European works that have reached that status of universal, right? Like, I think, you know, you can say, oh, yes, um, X book is supposed, you know, is ostensibly set here. But actually, it's this universal story, right? So there's this also, right, this whole um, tale that, I don't know, publishing, writing, literature tells itself, Western literature tells itself about the universal story. Mm, the right? man. But not wanting that from, you know, like, so when they're, you know, maybe confronted with a story uh, from elsewhere, mm. right, that you're like, well, where's the elsewhere? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and you're like, well, should that matter? Because you've been talking about, you know, isn't it wonderful that, you know, that these stories don't need to be set here or set there or, you know, they're timeless studies of character, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. So, 
Yeah, so it's just a very interesting double standard. Yeah, it's like only only one kind of culture can do the neutral, and then nobody else can. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, uh, women working in the translation sector, because I don't know that much about the translation sector, but I'd be very surprised if it was completely immune um, to the kind of gender uh, dynamics of, of every other industry. Um, tell me a little bit about um, if there is a gender divide in the industry and... Um, or any friction when it comes to kind of language and patriarchy and all that kind of thing. If there's anything that you've kind of seen or experienced, it would be really interesting to hear. Yeah, this is really interesting, actually, because um, for Indonesian to English translators, um, I'm sure gender plays into it. I'm sure um, I'm sure it's a it's a factor, but there are these other factors also that have been at play um, that involve race um, and that involve... Um, I guess that are generational. So it involves like, you know, people who are senior and more respected um, versus the people who aren't. I don't know if I'm making any any sense. So for example, right, there are two um, like quite senior translators who have been like very well known for their Indonesian to English translations. Um, and they are male, but they are also uh, white. And um, they are also, I guess, quite old right. yeah so um you know and so then established and very well respected and you know like have a lot of yeah just have a lot of respect accorded to them and so then it's just really hard for me to say whether it's like all of those factors or you know a male female thing um I feel like the Indonesian to English translation sphere has been um starved like it's very it, it's it hasn't had that many people in it um for a very long time like, um, there have been a few people, but there have been, um, I guess, like a, a very small handful who've been considered the dominant players. And I think that's beginning to shift and it's beginning to shift in favor of, um, you know, younger people who are women, people who are not necessarily, um, uh, I guess, you know, like white, you know, translators who are like Indonesian themselves. Um, and that's, I think that's like been a really important shift, actually, um, that's good. Yeah, just trying to think about it. But I just wish there were more of us. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, a friend of mine, she was at BLCT and she's like, oh, there's a, you know, an Indonesian to English translator there. But she also does in- English to Indonesian. Do you know about her? And I was like, no. And I was like, but I'm so excited that there's, <laughs> that there's one per- a person I don't know about. <laughs> like, it actually made me think, you know, like, we're not in the same... Um, position as in like you know Spanish or French or German where I think they're like and I think even Japanese now um, like there's like so many translators working and I feel like we just need more of that I wish there were um, more of that and I feel like conditions in Indonesia have not been very encouraging of that um, partly just because the the um, approach um until now i don't know if it's going to change has been you know sort of to um co- collectivize and to have all translation go through um like one foundation and one organization um that was funded by a government you know the government and received government support and i'm not sure if that actually resulted in you know like it 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 was not that good for um i guess equipping translators to be independent and um go getting and finding things themselves or encouraging new translators or encouraging um, like local Indonesian translators who actually might be like really amazing at, at translating. Um, so yeah, that, that's that been interesting. I'm really hoping things will change. Yeah. Um, 
I'm, I'm part of this. Slowly, in, maybe. I hope so. I don't know. I'm part of this um, arts initiative called Intersastra, and we've been doing um, like an emerging writer, emerging translator series. Um, so I've been the translation editor for it, and we've been um, uh, like taking on uh, not only write emerging pieces by emerging writers in Indonesian, but then um, working with emerging translators or people who are sort of like want to get more experience and training with translation. Yeah, that's um, really to cool. translate, and so that's been really. F- Um, fun and very rewarding to work with. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Hopefully that has inspired you to read more translated fiction. Do pick up The Frightened Ones. It's incredible. But you can also pick up any of the books that Tiffany has translated. I will leave some links in the show notes to those. As well as if you're looking for some Indonesian fiction, um, me and Tiffany were chatting afterwards and she really recommended The Wandering by Intan Paramedita. Uh, she's been on the podcast before. I don't know if you remember. but um, So there's a little TBR list for you. Uh, but we'd love to hear what your favourite translation fiction books are you can come over and follow us at vintage books on twitter and instagram to give us some recommendations we're going to be sharing lots of translated fiction throughout august uh, so we hope you enjoy that i've been lena norms and until next time